tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And this is episode 13 for January of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about spaceships that became characters we love as our main discussion topic. And then the shows we'll be discussing include Travelers, a wonderful Canadian import that recently dropped all 12 of its episodes on Netflix. And of course, the new hit Emerald City, a modern retelling of the Oz tale, which began its run on Friday, January 6th on NBC. And we'll be also sharing with you an interview with Sarah Gamble, who's the co-showrunner of The Magicians on Sci-Fi. They start their run on January 25th, and we're getting a little preview of what's to come. And in fact, I believe we're also going to be talking about that show next month in the February podcast. So something to look forward to there. Uh, but the discussion topics are going to shift a little bit. It's a new year, Dave, new set of podcasts. We made it through an entire year, started this same time last year with our very first Sci-Fi Fidelity episode. And I figured it's time to switch up the topics and have a theme for the year where we're going to go with the list idea. And I guess you and I have both discovered in our writing for Den of Geek that lists, if you have top 10 or even just a non-rated list of standout examples of something or other. Somebody will come behind you and tell you you're an idiot. <laughs> That's right. People will get very engaged, either positively or negatively. And the thing is, it doesn't matter which. It's just starting that discussion that's so much fun. So that's what we are going to endeavor to do with our discussion topics each month in 2017. And like Dave said, the first topic we're talking about is spaceships that became characters. And of course, there's so many iconic spaceships out there that it's going to be uh, very controversial, the things we leave off the list. Well, but I think to be fair, once we started putting together the short list, which actually became rather long, as you just uh, implied, some of them weren't really characters in their own right. So yeah. I, I think rightly so, we left them off the list, but they're so iconic, we are going to mention them. And that's why we qualified it that way. Characters in the show, the spaceships are so integral. And so it's going to be fun to discover how that goes. But we do have a little bit of spoilerific stuff. The Magician's Interview is pretty spoiler-free. Travelers is incredibly spoilery. We're going to be talking about the whole run. And Emerald City is just uh, not really spoilery at all, actually. We're talking about the premiere that's already out there. But if you haven't seen it yet, uh, it might be a little bit spoilery for you. So if you do need to avoid certain topics or want to skip over something that's not of interest to you, here are the time codes for today's topics. Spaceship characters. 334. Travelers. 2720. Emerald City. 4331. Magician's Interview. 5740. All right, and we're going to get right into it with spaceships as characters completely spoiler-free this part of the podcast because we're going deep into the past for some of these spaceships as characters, aren't we? Well, we are. And, you know, as I really sat down to look at my notes and the, and the shows that we're talking about, while the first one on the list, Farscape, is certainly well known among sci-fi fans. I got to be honest, Mike, I really never saw Farscape until maybe four or five years ago. Right. I think I even brought it to your attention because... I was renting the DVDs back when we did that sort of thing from Blockbuster. 
<laughs> to catch up on it. Yeah, neither one of us saw Farscape live, but yeah. So um, we're going to go back and forth here. Dave's going to start here with Farscape, the iconic living ship Moya. Yes. Now, Moya is what's known as a Leviathan transport vessel. And as Mike just said, in fact, I think they say this in the intro tag on, on each episode, a living ship. Not only was Maya living, but she was a sentient biomechanical spaceship. So while she certainly had a personality, she didn't communicate verbally. No. The way many of these other ships that had onboard AIs would communicate. Right. In fact, the pilot was the main way of getting at what the ship actually wanted or felt or things like that. And I think we did get a little bit of that to give the ship a little bit more of a living feel, but it is made from biomass. Right. And, and you know, you mentioned pilot and pilot, certainly a character in his own right was this little alien looking creature that had been bonded with the Leviathan, and, and again, in this case, Moya, and there are certainly many Leviathan ships out there. In fact, they were so prized that, that many of them were commandeered by the peacekeepers, who I know peacekeeper generally sounds like you would be the good guys, but <laughs> in the Farscape universe, they're not really. But then again, one of the beauties of Farscape, like the beauty of a lot of sci-fi shows is the people you thought were the bad guys maybe all of them aren't so bad after all and <laughs> yeah. and all that. Now, the other interesting thing about Moya is that in terms of weapons, she has none. The Leviathan's really only weapon, so to speak, is the ability to get away from danger via what was called the Starburst, which was, of course, an FTL system unmatched in the universe. So if they hit Starburst, you were not going to catch them. You were not going to find them. That's right. And uh, it's not something that I considered at the time to be something that was very common in the universe, at least that particular storyline that they had. It was it was a very unique situation that they were in. Right. Now, the other thing that was interesting, how we're introduced to Moya, is that she had been taken by the peacekeepers and the peacekeepers would arrange these, I guess you would call them some sort of a harness, basically something to control them and keep them from going off on their own. And somehow when John Crichton's uh, ship crashed into uh, Farscape, I forget exactly how he ended up coming <laughs> on board, but it did something to dislodge it. And then suddenly Moya was free. And that of course opens up the whole series. But the other thing about Moya is that she's capable of producing an offspring and, you know, during the course of the series, Moya becomes pregnant and we find out that she's actually giving birth to a hybrid, which was part of, again, surprise, surprise, some government genetic experiment so that she produced a Leviathan gunship hybrid. But as you might imagine, a hybrid of a gunship and a Leviathan <laughs> was just I completely forgot about that plot line, so I'm so glad you brought that up because it's the perfect example to start this discussion topic with because I don't think they get more character-like than Moya just from the standpoint of actually being a living being. And we're going to be talking about other ships that actually talk, but that's really kind of a cool aspect of it. Is it's There's no doubt about it being alive like from the is the AI really alive standpoint, but rather 
actual living biomass and the ability to reproduce as part of that. So Right, right. And and in terms of a living being as opposed to one of the ships that you're going to talk about where one of the crew members is constantly banging on it with a <laughs> yeah. big metal well, wrench. And in fact, since you started with the classic answer to this question, and we're each going to do three, Dave and I, we're, this can be called, I don't know, the super six or something as we do this each month, we'll each pick three uh, examples of whatever the topic is. And you went old school. So I'm going to go old school with Firefly. Uh, the show Firefly, the ship is actually called Serenity, of course. But I think it's very telling, even though this ship is not living, doesn't talk, doesn't have an AI associated with it. The sh show is called Firefly and the movie is called Serenity. That's no mistake that it's called the same thing as the ship. Now, of course, you could argue that it's the family on that ship that is the reason they use the ship's name as the name. But Joss Whedon himself often referred to Serenity as the 10th character of the series. And in fact, there were some DVD extras that depicted that exact idea of the ship as a character. Right. Now, it was a Firefly class right. ship, right? Which is where that came from. Uh, now, the other thing that was so cool, as you you know just mentioned, that you've got this group of people who are Nowadays, we, we might think of them as libertarians. They just want the government to leave them alone. Let me do my thing. I'll stay out of your way. You stay out of mine. They don't have much money, and this is basically the best ship that Malcolm Reynolds can afford, and he pulls the crew together, and they just, you know. I'm not even sure if it's something that he can afford because he salvaged it. Oh, that's right. Right. That's right, out of the, the salvage yard. Right. Malcolm Reynolds, played by Nathan Fillion, he used to be a sergeant serving on the losing side of a civil war that ended six years before the series began. And it's a story that was explored a little bit in flashbacks, but the story that we're told, if you put it together, is that he acquired Serenity from a used spaceship yard after the war. Uh, the episode Out of Gas depicted that whole thing. And so... There was another episode, or I believe it was a different episode, might have been that same one, where you got to see the small crew that he put together to take various jobs to support himself and his wartime companion, Zoe. <laughs> I don't know. I remember her last name, but... Washburn. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Her married name was yes. Washburn. <laughs> right. Hence, her husband, Wash. <laughs> exactly. Pilot of the ship. But it was great because, of course, this relationship that the captain has with his ship especially it was something that was imitated later and so we now we take it for granted as something that just happens in space dramas but it wasn't always the case and i i do think that firefly was one of the first shows to do that right and, and just the verbal interplay particularly between kaylee who was the ship's mechanic and nathan fillion's character malcolm reynolds the ship's captain about if you treat her right She'll always, you know, be there for you just as if, and again, that, that whole applying the a f female persona right. to a ship. And, and as you said, the ship became the 10th character. I mean, we all recognized even a silhouette of Serenity of this Firefly class ship. And then, of course, they kind of made a name for themselves out on the outer edges of uh the universe as they went about their business, both good and bad. Exactly. So those are a good place to start 
But we also have some modern examples, you and I. So what do you got for your second one? Well, when you say modern... (laughs) It's relative. (laughs) When I say I came to Stargate Universe late, I I mean like six months ago, because (laughs) I came to Stargate SG-1. Now, I saw the movie near when it first came out, but I didn't see the series until maybe about four years ago when I binged all 10 seasons, and I never really got around to Stargate Universe, I guess because... I think it's five or six seasons, and and that seems somewhat daunting. (laughs) But I finally got into it, and I'm in season two. But you talk about ships that are really their own character, their own entity. The ship Destiny is really by itself, I think. Oh, yeah, in terms of just how old it is and how much those walls have seen. Yeah, I, I mean, we may be talking a million years or so, but it's also one of several automated ships that were launched basically as they were trying to, the ancients that is, were trying to populate the Stargates all across the universe. Now, look, of course, if you're not familiar with the Stargate universe, <laughs> you've been living under a rock, <laughs> Yeah, but and this stuff doesn't mean anything to you. But the other interesting thing is it's got a Stargate on board the ship. Yeah. That was a unique aspect of it. And I guess the idea was for the ancients to eventually hop on the ship once all the Stargates had been seeded. Isn't that right? And they just didn't get around to it because of what was going on in their history. Right. And then you've got this crew that ends up on this ship. They don't really know where they are. They figure it out as they're going along. And I mean, at the point I'm, at in season two, they still haven't figured everything out. And of course, some characters, one character has figured things out that he's still keeping to himself. But unlike the Leviathan, which really had no weapons other than its ability to evade, Destiny's pretty powerful with weapon turrets, anti-fighter emplacements, but it's as most of the ships are in the sci-fi universe, it's capable of faster than light travel, but you know, it's got its own unique kind of propulsion system. Not, not your typical hyperdrive system. (laughs) No, not at all. But how can you argue that it's not a character of the show when it drives everything that the characters on the show do? It's existence is what allows the humans to continue to exist too. So it's one of these things where if you're talking about all the iconic spaceships out there. Certainly there are ones that are more iconic than Destiny, but few are as integral to the storyline and the plot of the show than a a ship like Destiny. Yep. But I'm going to go with a more modern example that might be more controversial even than that one in terms of including on the list because it's so recent, but it's inarguably a character and that's Lucy from Killjoys. And for those of you who have been following this show from the very beginning, it didn't take long before we realized that Lucy, who is an artificial intelligence of the spaceship that's owned by the Killjoys team, sort of has a protective way about her when it comes to John Jacoby. And even though the ship technically is owned by Dutch, the leader of the three uh, members of that team, it's definitely noticeable that Lucy has preferential treatment for some people over others. Oh, oh, no question. And I think in terms of 
the modern ship, the talking ship, the ship's AI who has a personality of its own, Lucy's about as cool as they come these days. Right. And it's getting to the point now in the Killjoys fandom, or I say it's getting to the point as though it hasn't already been well established, that there's a ship angle, a relationship angle from the shipping standpoint between Lucy and John. I mean, people actually feel like they should be a couple in in the uh, sense of putting their names together and that sort of thing. So it's really something that people have latched onto this ship as someone that they can identify with just as much as the humans on the team. Right. And there's also that, that certain attraction like Serenity, where it's not this big battle cruiser with weapons you know, all over the place. It's by all accounts, it's a smaller vessel. It, you know, I mean, certainly it's powerful. Certainly it's got FTL and all that, but it is rather compact. We do get to know most of the ship as, as we go along in the series. Right. I mean, they don't have much of a cargo bay. I believe they do have a land transport that lives in the cargo bay as well. But it's really about what can the ship do? I mean, I just am remembering the episode where they were all on a space station. And I'm probably going to mangle this because it's been a while since I've watched season one. But where Dutch actually had to jump out into space and her nano nanites were helping her stay alive or the, whatever she had been injected with was helping her stay alive right? until she could get to the ship. And Lucy was one of the only reasons they succeeded with that mission. So, and her protectiveness did get them in trouble as well, but at the same time, giving her a personality, I think really made this ship special and makes it feel like much more bounty hunterish. I mean, you want your bounty hunters to be like Han Solo. And I think the Killjoys are definitely part of that. And just as much uh, a part of the team like Millennium Falcon is for Han Solo, certainly Lucy is that to Dutch and the two brothers. Yep. But you also have an AI to talk about. I do, and I, I have to thank you. I noticed right away you gave me the one you know I'd want to talk about. Oh, yeah. I was never going to steal that one from you. <laughs> and that is, of course, the Andromeda Ascendant. From the show Andromeda. And again, it's one of those shows that I don't know how I missed it when it aired. I didn't watch it until, to be quite honest, I don't think I watched it until we started doing Continuum. Oh, really? That's right, because of the Lexadoid connection. Right. And in this case, the Andromeda Ascendants, the name of the ship, and it's a warship of the system's commonwealth. And it it, at the time was regarded as one of the most powerful ships in the known galaxies, also one of the most recognizable ships. They were not going to be able to sneak about without being recognized. But what's so cool here on a lot of different levels for me <laughs> is that the AI has a personality, certainly like Lucy in Killjoys and communicates with the crew, knows the crew, but also comes across basically in three different formats because you've got the two-dimensional format when we would see her on one of the computer monitors and we would see her face right of course played by Lexa Doig as you mentioned then we'd see the 3D holographic version uh-huh but then finally we see the avatar where she interacts with the crew and you forget that she's not a human being but rather an artificial intelligence's avatar right and i love how they have it separated into three distinct personalities the ship itself 
the hologram, and the android. Right. And I don't want to say that people weren't concerned with shipping angles back then, but (laughs) that said, there were certainly people that were shipping uh, Dylan Hunt, played by Kevin Sorbo, who, who was the captain of the ship, and the AI, Rami, short for Andromeda, of course. The Android version. Right, the Android version. And of course, we started to see that Rami seemed to be developing feelings for Dylan Hunt. And it was funny that the, the, we talked about androids in the December podcast, and it wasn't until she was placed in a human appearing body that those emotions were ascribed to her. So I thought that it was an interesting way of doing it. Right. Now, the other thing that I'd forgotten until I started doing a little bit of research about this is that the artificial intelligence of these cruisers were considered officers in their own right on the ship. Now, oh, right. I forgot about that. So, again, you know, when we talk about ships that became personalities, that became actual characters, certainly Andromeda Ascendants right, right there at the list. Exactly. And and I think there's no arguing that the ones that actually manifest personalities are deserving of being on the list, even if they might be a little bit more obscure. But there's one last one that we need to talk about, and you might need to help me with this because I'm a little bit behind on this particular series, shocking as that may be. And that's the TARDIS, which is technically not a spaceship, but definitely travels through space as well as time. We've actually seen it do that. And in the fourth episode of the sixth season, an episode called The Doctor's Wife, the TARDIS actually comes to life. Right. And, and now you said it's a time machine, but it really, it's also a spacecraft, which right. makes it unique, you know, in and of itself. Not that we don't have some time traveling episodes in some of these other shows, but usually there's a wormhole involved or <laughs> yeah. s- some other weird phenomenon. Right. And the ship still f- travels through space in the same visual manner sometimes as it does when it travels through time. But it definitely does that, even though it's not shaped correctly in our mind's eye as what a ship would appear like. It, it, it definitely is. And of course, on the inside, when they're steering it around, it looks just like a spaceship bridge, uh, just as much as it does a time machine. Right. Now, the other, the other interesting thing with the TARDIS is that somebody might ask, that doesn't know the show. Well, why does it look like a police box? Well, the the TARDIS initially had, I guess we would say, chameleon properties so that it, when it would touch down somewhere, it automatically would blend in with its surroundings. And at the time, it was, I guess, in some downtown London street or whatever, turned itself into a police box. But then something happened and it wasn't able to then change its appearance anymore. So it's kind of like stuck as a police box, <laughs> even, even though everything else seems to work fine. Exactly. And that's what makes it so unusual because even if the doctor's wife episode had not happened, it still would be considered to be a, a ship with a personality, the way the doctor interacts with it, talks to it, cajoles it and everything like that. But it shouldn't surprise anyone that there was an episode in which the matrix of the Dr. Stardust is removed and placed in the body of a woman named Idris, played by Saran Jones, who basically helps them escape in that particular episode. This was something that seems like an obvious choice to 
have as an episode. And it actually won a few awards. It got the Ray Bradbury Award for Outstanding Dramatic Presentation and the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form as well. And with good reason. Now, I admit I have not seen this episode because I'm a little bit before that in my watching. I'm I'm in season five right now, uh, slowly making my way through it, but some good performances all around. And with my personal favorite doctor, Matt Smith, while Amy Pond was still the companion. One of my favorite combos. <laughs> right. And then, you know, just finally, the other thing that I think strikes at the heart of a, a ship having a personality, while the doctor certainly can input coordinates for the ship to go time and place, there are also times when the ship had a mind of its own and the TARDIS would take the doctor where the doctor needed to be. Right. Well, yeah, that that cannot be left out. The fact that it would do that is just like a character would do. And yeah, that's a very, very good point. It's not just this one episode. And I think it definitely deserves to be on the list, this list because of that. And it should be said, we did have a long list when we first started making this and it was pared down to these six. And we want to mention a couple of honorable mentions to ships that also kind of fit into this category. This is also known as the, what were you morons thinking? list. (laughs) This is the CYA, just in case our listeners mention it. You got to go with the USS Enterprise from Star Trek, of course, because that definitely developed a character of its own as well over the years, just from sheer uh, (laughs) being on the air so much. And I have to actually say the Expanse, even though it's one season old, just like uh, some of the other ones that we talked about, the Rosinante is starting to get that same Firefly-esque personality. And then the Raza on Dark Matter, that's just as old as Killjoys. It's in, it just finished its second season. And that kind of has that same bounty hunter feel that Killjoys has. Right. Although it, it, it's sort of a step up in quality of the ship, which is also cool. And then there's, of course, the whole other storyline that's totally different. But And the AI from that ship is the android, which is completely separate from the ship. She right. kind of upstages the ship a little bit. Right. And then finally, of course, how could we leave off Battlestar Galactica, Dave? (laughs) Well, that's true. You know, and and that was the first thing I said to you when I saw the list as you had typed it up. And I thought more about your response to me. And and I do think you're right in that. I mean, Galactica was one of many of this kind of ship. So that on the one hand, it was unique in that it was the only ship that survived. And I guess it was certainly cool that the reason it survived is because it wasn't online. Yeah, that was, that was a cool aspect, but it didn't make it a character. Right. So that's why we left it off the list, but definitely those four ships deserve some honorable mentions and we're going to keep this going. Uh, The super six each month, we'll give you our list of our favorites, not necessarily ranked, no particular order, just the ones that Dave and I have an affection for, or, think are good examples of whatever the topic is. So I think that'll be a good way to to unite the 12 episodes for 2017. Sounds good to me. Looking forward to it. But we did have an interview last episode with the showrunner and lead actor from Travelers, which is a Canadian show on Showcase, a network that is near and dear to our heart. But the show came to America via Netflix. So we were able to see a lot of the episodes all at once. In fact, it was kind of weird that we actually got to see the finale before Canada did because of that. (laughs) But I I think, Mike, you and I would agree that Travelers 
is that show that you may not know about out there. And if you don't, if you haven't heard of it, you need to find out. This is the best show that people don't know about. No question about it. And I think that the reaction I've seen on social media once the word spread of it being on Netflix has been extremely positive and everyone has been pushing it via word of mouth. So I I do hope it gets the attention it deserves. Right. So season one, as you mentioned, initially aired once a week on Showcase in Canada, October 17th, 2016, but then it dropped all at once, Netflix worldwide on December 23rd, 12 episodes. And the initial premise, you've got time travelers from the future coming back to change things so that their bleak future never happens. Sounds and, familiar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and right away, okay, as you said, seen this before, you better have a new twist on it. And boy, do they. Yeah. First of all, they're not traveling through time physically. <laughs> That's the big twist. Right. So that what's happening is they're, again, through technology, they inhabit the body of somebody who's just about to die. So the first thing you see is this this clock ticking down and it's in red. And when it gets down to zero is when that person's supposed to die. Recorded time of death. But what happens then initially is the person starts screaming like they're having an aneurysm or something. Yeah, well, they probably are. (laughs) And then the clock turns to green and it starts going one, two, three, and then the person recovers. And what you learn is that that's then the mind transfer from the person in the future to this person's body in the present. All right. And I guess the idea is they can inhabit a body that was going to die anyway from not only a moral standpoint, but perhaps also from being able to carry out their own mission using the bodies of the people who might be in positions to help the mission, such as the character that Eric McCormack plays being in the FBI. Right. And and you mentioned the mission and their mission is to stop an asteroid that's going to strike Earth. And basically what they've got to do is get this, is it a nuclear bomb? Now I can't even remember. Or is it no, a la- it's an X-ray laser. Oh, that's yeah. right. It's a laser. And they want to move it away from hitting the Earth. Right. And I think this is the main mission, but there are all these secondary and tertiary missions as well that lead up to this that we get to see episode by episode. Right. But we're wondering because by the end of episode seven, they accomplish their mission and they're all like, (laughs) what now? Yeah. Now what? (laughs) So they and here's the really aspect that sets it apart, I think, from any time travel show where they're coming back. Terminator series, of course, the time travelers have to assimilate into the lives of their hosts bodies. And that they form these attachments. For instance, one of the characters is a young female that has an abusive boyfriend and a baby. Right. And I think one of the characters along the way says, why don't you just let him have the baby so that you can go about your mission more easily without having to worry about it? But Carly has clearly made an attachment. And all of the characters on the particular team that we're following seem to have fallen prey to attachments. Now, maybe it's unfair to call it falling prey to emotional attachments. It's just that I don't see any of the other travelers having that problem. It just seems to be unique to our team. 
Right. And granted, we don't have a whole lot of experience with other teams, travelers here and there that encounter uh, the team, which brings up the protocols that get mentioned throughout the series. And, and it's really cool the way they bring them up. They're brought up in an offhand kind of way. And I was writing down a list. And finally, you said, uh, you might want to check out this link on Showcase <laughs> Network where they laid them out there. But but they make perfect sense. The mission comes first. And of course, you can interpret that however you want. But, but certainly, you know, these are people are here because of something serious in their future. So the mission does come first, but it doesn't because that's what happens. They fall into these lives and sometimes the baby takes precedent. And not to mention there are clearly, since there are many travelers, we discover many teams out there that have their own missions that are unknown to each other. They don't all agree. They all have their own little agendas that they might have. They might not agree with what the director who's steering everything is doing. And so protocol one, the mission comes first is not necessarily held to because of human foibles. And I'd love that reveal, by the way, as the series goes along that who is the director and how is he making these, these decisions? Right. And as it turns out, of course, he's not human at all. <laughs> right. And, and so like what you're getting at is, is basically protocol two, which is, you know, don't jeopardize your cover, but don't divulge information from the future to travelers in the past, just because they came from the same future you came from doesn't mean you need to let them know certain things. And also relationships that you may have had, because we do see that a couple of them have some clandestine relationships. You can't really carry that through and expect to continue as you did in your previous life. Right now outside, was it Eric McCormick? There's only one of them that we've seen what they look like in the future, right? Because oh, you know who it was? It was Carly. Oh, it was Carly. You're right. That's right. Which was so strange, too, because I would think that they would maybe play with the fact that she is experiencing our present as an African-American female when she herself was not in the future. But maybe they will play with that in a future season. That would be interesting. Right. Now, Protocol 4, do not reproduce, which makes oh, sense. You skipped over Protocol no, 3. Yeah, I know, but because that <laughs> oh, seemed okay. to... Uh, but Protocol 3, don't take a life, don't save a life unless directed to do so. And of course, for those of us that are time travel fans, that makes perfect sense because the butterfly effect, uh, if you follow the great person theory, which I happen to feel is, is the most important time travel rule that, yeah, get rid of somebody little, inconsequential, it's not really going to have a big effect on things. But big people, big historical important people are going to change things. Yeah, I like that theory too. But yeah, the Protocol 4, I think, is the one that got sort of shuffled under the rug a little bit. Do not reproduce. Uh, I wonder if that's going to actually come into play in the future. But um, yeah, Protocol 3 was very much in play when that busload of retired folks <laughs> right. are setting up as snipers and they aren't allowed to shoot the people that are coming in from the present, from our present. Right. Now, I, I didn't forget Protocol 5, but Protocol 6, these compartmentalized groups do not interact with each other. So in other words, you, you know, Grant McLaren's team. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Does not interact with another team of travelers from the future, even though they're all theoretically on the same team. So, I mean, you understand why they have that protocol in place. But it does seem a little bit weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Protocol 5, when you when you look at it, in the absence of direction, after completion of the mission, live out these lives indefinitely. Right. And you'd think that since that was listed as a protocol, that the team would be prepared for that eventuality. But it seems when they are finished with the mission and they are not sure if they're successful with diverting Helios... They're thinking, okay, why haven't we been erased from existence by the success of this mission? And if we haven't, what do we do now? They seem very directionless, even though they're supposed to live out their lives as normal. Right. Now, speaking of their lives, we've mentioned Eric McCormick, who's, who's the most recognizable actor in the show, uh, plays Grant McLaren, an FBI agent who has a wife. They, they apparently had a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. and she wants to try again. And of course, he's got all sorts of protocols staring him in the face that would preclude <laughs> that happening. Yet he's starting to feel some attachment to her, even though he has a relationship with one of the other travelers. I love this aspect. They spent quite a bit of time on it in one of the later episodes where he was close to death, Grant McLaren was, and was able to access fragments of memories that were left over when he became Grant McLaren. There were still some memories for him to access. And because of those memories, even though they were piecemeal, he was able to get a context for the relationship and I think form an attachment with his wife that now is going to replace. And he's making excuses already why he can no longer be with Carly, as she's known in the present. Yep, played by Nesta Cooper and and the one with the baby that we mentioned. Uh, Philip Pearson, played by Riley Dolman, who's the computer specialist of the team. But by chance, he's inhabited the body of a drug addict junkie. So he's constantly trying to get his drugs. And, And fortunately, one of the members of the team is a doctor. And she helps him out. But at some point, we're wondering whether or not he's just going to have to go cold turkey, go through some sort of a program or what. But can he continue being addicted to these drugs? Well, especially since he's not just the computer specialist, he's the historian. And it's his job to remember every single detail of the time period and place that they end up in. And this inhibits his ability to do that. Yep. Yep. Now, one of the most fascinating characters to me is Trevor Holden, played by Jared Abramson, whose host body is a high school football star who suffers a concussion and ends up giving up football. His father apparently is living vicariously through his son. Yeah. And suddenly he goes from this jock to this deep thinker. And on the one hand, you might think his father would be proud that now he cares about school and all of that, but but of course he doesn't. <laughs> what he does do, though, is form an attachment with his guidance counselor, weird as it is, and played by Jennifer Spence, who we love, Jen Spence. Yes. <laughs> and she's great in this role. Although, okay, Michael, have you ever seen a guidance counselor that's got an office like hers? 
Oh, definitely not. Oh, my gosh. It's bigger than some classrooms. Oh, <laughs> I, I want to teach at that school. Right. But what's interesting about this character is that not only is the traveler that inhabits the 18-year-old the oldest of the team, by some accounts, over 100 years old. So he's got all this experience and his meditative bent. Right. I mean, the scene where he wants to sit down and watch golf with his father. You know, is this a stepfather? I mean, it's never clear. He always calls him by his first name. It's it's his father. That's but what be- I thought. Because he's the traveler, he doesn't feel comfortable calling him dad. Right. But, but he's making an attempt. And again, maybe even more so than any of the others. Okay. My favorite is Marcy. She's hot. What am I going to say? I mean, <laughs> now she's also the team's medical officer, but her host was a psychiatric patient. Right. And I love this aspect of the show that the historical records were not accurate. And so there are mistakes made and we see glitches. We see even one instance where a family is taken over by travelers, but the youngest daughter does not get taken over and that causes problems. So this is not a flawless technology. And certainly this team suffers from Philip not being detected as a actual heroin junkie and Marcy not being detected to have problems with her brain and developmental disabilities. Right. Now, she is medicating herself, right, to keep those psychiatric issues at bay. Well, it's the physical issues that she's trying to prevent because her brain, her mind is too developed to fit in this damaged brain that she's taken over and it's going to kill her. Right. Now, the other thing that's interesting with Marcy's character is that they have to reboot her. Oh, I love this. Which destroys her memories of her time in 2016. So she still remembers that she's a traveler. She remembers about the mission, but she has forgotten everything from when she arrived in 2016. So it's almost that she has to fill in the blanks and and the relationship she has with, with David, her counselor. And it's pretty much a one-sided relationship on his end. <laughs> well, it, oh, I mean, it, 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 I, it I know. become that. But yeah. yeah, that's interesting because it not only brings up the problems that they have in their relationships and the experience that she gained and where the personality almost comes out different. I think Philip even comments on that, that she's different. But it also brings up the idea of what makes our identity? What makes us who we are? Is it the sum of our experience, the accumulation of memories that determines our personality. And that becomes a a really big question because it seems like the obvious answer would be no, but it seems undeniable. And I love that as a theme. Right. Now, what would a time travel coming back to change the present so the future doesn't turn out as it has be without a rebel faction? Yes, (laughs) I love it. And that's not introduced till the very end. In fact, it's implied that what they did with Helios diverting the asteroid is what caused the faction to come into place to begin with because shelter 41 did not collapse the way they had it in their memory. And so whatever small changes they made did not prevent the apocalyptic future, but it did make some minor changes that may actually have big consequences. Right. And then of course you mentioned this earlier in the discussion, we hear time and time again about the director and the director's plans and the director's uh, mission And then we find out that the director is an artificial intelligence. Right. And there's so much second guessing going on towards the end that it's really kind of fun to try and guess what is the truth? What is the situation that we really want to believe? Should they let the director come back into this 
matrix that they've built or should they destroy it? Yeah. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait about six months or so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, lots is left hanging, so it's going to be fun to see where they take it. But it's clearly set up a new direction for it. So it has its self-contained storyline that everyone, science fiction fan or no, should be able to enjoy. And, and we can't recommend it highly enough. But let's go ahead and move on to the new show, Emerald City, which debuted on January 6th on NBC. And it was a double episode. It was interesting, Dave, because when we were watching it, we were like, okay, are they just going to retell the Wizard of Oz story? Because the first half of the two-hour premiere did seem to be doing that, just kind of putting a modern twist on the tale that we're familiar with. Yeah, but that didn't last long, though, did it? (laughs) No, not at all. In fact, the show does try to walk a fine line between that childishly scary classic Judy Garland film and sort of an edgy, dark update, which I liken to Game of Thrones. And as I start reading things out there about this show, I'm not the only one that makes that parallel. They're certainly going for that Game of Thrones feel to the world of Oz. But what I found fascinating about this series, even before it started to really get good and because it did take a while. There was a slow start to it at first. But before I even got to that point, I dug into some of the backstory of how this came to be. And it's really cool how it was filmed. I saw a really nice making of that uh, you can view for free on YouTube. It's a 41 minute, the making of Emerald City that tells you about this director, Tarsum Singh, who is directing all 10 episodes. And he insisted that they, as much as possible, use actual backdrops for this story rather than green screen as most people would. In fact, I think an analog to this series might be Once Upon a Time, and they certainly used a lot of green screen there. So they filmed it all over these various locations in Europe, including places that actually had a castle that they could film against. They were in Spain. They were in Croatia. They had their soundstage in Budapest, and that's where a lot of it is filmed as well, in Hungary. So just beautiful, beautifully shot, and I think that actually speaks well of it, even if the story takes a while to catch hold. Yeah, and you know, I mentioned at the top of the show that I think I called it a hit show, and I haven't looked at the numbers, but everything I've read, you know, everybody I've talked to is really positive, really encouraged, and it's The Wizard of Oz, And while this is not the first time it's been reimagined, I think the other ones were a lot less satisfying than what we've seen so far. (laughs) That's for sure. Because they're not going for like a Johnny Depp in Wonderland type of feel. This is definitely definitely a very true feeling to it. I think the only problem I had with it in the beginning was how easily Dorothy took to the idea of being transported to another world. But once you get past that, it actually is much easier to suspend your disbelief about a lot of things and get into this new world. And of course, it doesn't hurt that Dorothy is played by Adria Arjona, who is one of my favorite minor supporting characters from Person of Interest. That's how I know her. She was apparently also in True Detective, and I did see True Detective, but I don't remember her from that show. But she was just such a great character and person of interest that I really enjoyed. And she's great as a lead actress. Yeah, a real lot of, lot of screen presence. Oh, yeah. And she's playing opposite one of the 
biggest screen presences that there are, and that's Vincent D'Onofrio, who plays the Wizard of Oz himself. Now, interesting, because, of course, people may know him from his Law and Order uh, Criminal Intent series and, and some other things that he's been in, but I actually thought his performance as the Wizard of Oz was a little bit strange at first. It took a little bit getting used to the vocal inflections and his mannerisms, but there's a later scene that's, uh, in fact, I think it might be in the episode that's coming this week, episode three, that I did get a little sneak peek of. There's a scene in there that you guys absolutely have to see that is just wonderful for this character played by Vincent D'Onofrio. So I can't wait to see how the Wizard of Oz is fleshed out as a character. Right. And the other cool thing is, you know, you mentioned once we get past, I don't know, 10 minute mark, 15 minute mark, and we realize well, okay, I see the Wizard of Oz comparisons and all of that. But then when you look at the characters, the Wizard of Oz in the movie that we're all used to seeing, I mean, he's a good guy. Okay, he tells little white lies to the people, but he's basically a good guy. <laughs> right. And not so here, it doesn't seem, right? I mean, you've got the conflict of science versus magic, and he's banned magic, apparently. Oh, yeah. And I think that's going to be central to everything because the witches are playing along for now, but I don't think that's going to last very long. And you knew something was up when she first got there and slammed her police car rather than her house right. <laughs> down on the Wicked Witch of the East. And the munchkins didn't come out talking about the lollipop guild. <laughs> right. You know, we had the Freelanders that are very tribal in nature initially helping Dorothy, but they're not celebrating the fact that the witch is dead. The witch may have been kind of a cruel lady, but she controls the weather and she keeps things in check in this land. And we needed the witch here because the witch is a very powerful being that you can't just get rid of them and not replace them. And apparently the cardinal witches are a dying breed. Yeah. Now, I think with the Freelanders you mentioned, think the hundred <laughs> and a little more civilized grounders. Yes, exactly. Right. And I mean, look, from our traditional Wizard of Oz, Glinda, Good Witch of the North, she's good. That's all there is to it. Not quite as much <laughs> here. Not bad, but we're not sure she's good. Yeah, the witches are an interesting breed in this because obviously they're playing with the idea of the Wizard of Oz and the Cardinal Witches, each being political powers in their own right. right. And the Wizard of Oz has subsumed them by outlawing magic. Apparently, he saved them from the last time that this creature that has invented whole cloth, I believe. It might be in the Frank Baum books that I'm just not familiar with, but the beast forever that they're really having to combat. And it's this unknown creature that can take the form of great floods or scourges of fire and comes back periodically throughout history to destroy everything. And the latest disaster, at least in Oz, was offset by the Wizard of Oz and his giant wizards that are still dotting the landscape as huge monuments or statues that are standing and waiting for the next time that the beast forever shows up. And this is why he's able to hold his power over the witches, even though they clearly would love to pull out their magic and kind of still do surreptitiously now and again. <laughs> right now we are introduced to the West, but not the South. No. Yeah. Are we going to see the South eventually? Do you think? Well, I don't know that they're in the book. I don't think there's a South in the book, but I do think they're probably going to hold that card up their sleeve in case they need it. And because they each have their own personality, you've got the Wicked Witch of the West, who we're familiar with the green skin and melting with a pail of water. Not so in this retelling. 
they have her running a brothel and almost willingly giving up her magic in subsuming herself to the Wizard of Oz, whereas the Witch of the North, Glinda, has her own separate domain, but gives these uh, advisors, I think they call them counselors, to the Wizard of Oz that are dressed in those blue robes with the funky uh, headdress behind them. So she's exercising her own form of power. And you can tell that the tension is thick with any kind of danger that confronts Oz might break the fragile peace, the fragile truce that has been made here. And that's what makes it exciting to me. The political intrigue that is implicit in the season premiere, but also in the little sneak peek that I took of episode three as well. It's, it really comes to a head. Right, because nobody trusts anybody, and Dorothy's trying to navigate all of these political, as you said, intrigues and, and the political infighting and... She's just trying to to learn it on the fly. But what did you think about how she met Lucas? I thought that was interesting because you knew she had to meet the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and, and the Lion at some point. So they kind of played with that a little bit. In fact, there are a lot of familiar elements that got updated here. And the Scarecrow is one of them. It's not so much that he's a Scarecrow, although he was kind of covered in straw as he was hanging from his Scarecrow-like crucifix. <laughs> We have no idea what he's doing up there, why he was there, why there are a bunch of dead bodies around him. He doesn't remember with a kind of a play on the idea that the scarecrow has no brain. Right. Lucas has no memories. So this is the first companion that Dorothy takes on. And we haven't seen the Tin Man or the Lion yet, except in promotional material. And I think they're playing that close to the vest. They really want to keep that secret until they're ready to introduce those other characters. But there's a lot of familiar things. There's Toto, not a small dog, German shepherd. Oh, I love him. (laughs) You've got the yellow brick road. It's not made of yellow bricks. It's just bricks with yellow pollen sprinkled on it uh, from the poppy, making it hard to stay on the yellow brick road because it makes you kind of drugged out a little bit. But there's also some deeper tales that play on the idea of the original story, such as the fact that Dorothy is with Auntie M in the original movie. And so they decided that she doesn't know her mother. And just as she leaves for Oz, she just got to meet her mother. And there's some hints along the way that her mother may have a deeper story to tell with regard to Oz that would explain why Dorothy herself is there. So I think there's a lot of deeper storylines to discover along the way that will not be familiar to people, but will still play on what we remember from the classic tale. All right. But do we have any flying monkeys? We do have flying monkeys. (laughs) They're mechanical. It's very steampunk. In fact, the fact that the wizard of Oz plays with science makes it kind of a steampunk aspect to it, which will appeal to people who have seen not that much uh, represented from that subgenre on television. So I think that's exciting. And One of my favorite new elements, Dave, has got to be the story of Tip. Now, Tip is not in the books, but in this show, this is going to be an important storyline to follow. A young boy who is trapped in, or being kept prisoner, really, in a witch's house, being given medicine, supposedly for a weak heart or something like that, but come to find out that as soon as he is able to escape with the help of a friend, the medicine starts to wear off. They need to find some more, but... Because he doesn't have the medicine anymore, poof, Tip turns into a girl. 
and the true nature of the medicine and tip and what's going on with him and, and how he slash she is able to come to a crisis of identity is going to be one of the most important parts of this. And I start thinking along the lines of, will this be the witch of the South uh, as a young child? You know, there could be a destiny yeah. involved. Well, because the the woman that was supposedly protecting Tip really did come across as believable yeah. that 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 she was. We don't know protecting from who, but still, exactly. So there's a lot of stuff to develop, and in fact, the behind the scenes video that you can watch that I mentioned on YouTube, the making of, introduces a a completely different kingdom called Ev, which is neighboring Oz and did not fare so well during the last visit from the beast forever. And so you're going to get just like the game of Thrones has the different factions and the different uh, kingdoms. So will be true in, in Emerald city as well. So it's just going to be a rich tapestry that goes into directions that you might not predict if you just saw the first half of the premiere. Okay. So uh, you mentioned earlier that Dorothy seems to accept her circumstances a little too easily. I guess I'm still operating under the assumption that this is all a dream. Oh, really? <laughs> Just like it was in the movie. <laughs> Just like it was in the movie. A lot longer running, a lot deeper, but nah. that, you know, somehow, I, I know, I know. <laughs> but I don't know how else to explain her attitude at this point. Right. And it also came through in D'Onofrio's performance. I felt like he could have been a little bit better. And I don't think it's their fault. I don't think it's Adria's fault. I don't think it's Vincent's fault. I think the writing was just suffering a little bit because lots been made about the director, Tarsim Singh and all he's doing for his filming style, but the writing team and the showrunner have kind of been in the background because of that. And I'm wondering is the meat of the story to come because the exposition was a little weak. I'll be honest, but it just gets so good so quickly that I've sort of forgotten about that. And I'm just sort of, sweeping it under the rug. <laughs> well, and I think sometimes it takes a couple episodes for the characters to get their feet under themselves playing a particular character that, you know, as you alluded, the, the writing certainly plays a part in that. But, you know, I haven't seen episode three yet the way you have, but I can't wait because I know you, you've been speaking very highly of it. Right. And I'm anxious to see where it goes. So, and NBC, I'm telling you, they're pulling up, they've got timeless going. Now they've got Emerald city the dark horse comes from behind here. I'm, I'm not used to having a network uh, pull out something like this. So hopefully the listeners out there are enjoying Emerald city as well. And we're going to go ahead and move on to our interview segment now. And this is a show that is on sci-fi, which is the network we're used to talking about because it gives us so many of our great shows. And we will be talking about the magicians in February, but we want to get a little sneak peek in this interview with Sarah Gamble. We talked to her about season two. She is the co-showrunner along with John McNamara. And season two is going to take the grad students of Breakbills to the land of Fillory, where they suddenly find themselves ascending as royalty. So let's take a little sneak peek at what we can expect from season two in this wonderful interview that we did with Sarah Gamble. All right. Well, the subject of this month's interview segment is Sarah Gamble, who came to the genre television world in earnest during her writing and producing stint on Supernatural, the juggernaut of a show for which she wrote nearly 30 episodes and produced many more than that. 
not to mention being showrunner in seasons six and seven. And then after a brief detour writing for Aquarius, the David Duchovny vehicle, which Dave enjoys, she co-created The Magicians along with her fellow showrunner, John McNamara. And the fantasy series is now entering its second season with a rabid fan base in its wake. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Sarah Gamble. Thank you for having me. Now, as a reader of the books, and I know you read the books before even getting involved with the show. I did. I'm very amazed at how much of a departure this show has been able to make while still somehow staying true to the spirit of the Lev Grossman trilogy. Do you feel like the show is going farther and farther abreast? Not that that's a bad thing from the source material as the show progresses? It's a weird thing. I I think from the very beginning, we knew that we were not going to be able to bring sort of the letter of the books to life by transliterating them for TV. We knew that to capture the spirit that we felt when we read the books, we were going to have to make some plot departures. So that was really in the first conversation we ever had with Lev Grossman. Um, And he completely understood and agreed You know, our guiding principle has always been talking a lot in the writer's room about what it is in the books that we respond to. And then we kind of find a way to put that in the TV show. We always say that there's like a map that gets you from, say, L.A. to New York. Um, He (laughs) got there using his roads and we're going to the same place, but we're taking slightly different roads than he did some of the time. And he's in the writer's room, too, or is he just more of a consulting role? He's um he's in a consulting role. I mean, he comes and visits the writer's room when we're lucky enough to have him in L.A. He lives in New York. Um, but we send him all the material. Um, we talk to him first. We show it to him before we show it to our benevolent overlords. And, um, because, you know, we want his notes. We want him to weigh in. He's just so brilliant and so creative. And I think he's enjoying iterating on his work as well. So um, it's really fun to be creative partners with him. And and certainly speaking of the source material, you and fellow showrunner John McNamara were able to option the magician's novels with your own money, which has to be a sort of fantasy come true. But what advantages does that give you as a writer or producer in terms of shopping it around? Um, Yeah, we did. We optioned it with our own money together with Michael London, our executive producer. He, He actually had worked with Lev on a previous version of the pilot that didn't go to series. And uh, the, I think the advantage was just that we wanted to, we kind of wanted the safety of John's garage to write the script. <laughs> and we literally wrote it in his garage. Although I have to say, it's like the nicest garage I've ever been in in my, <laughs> my life. We call it the Bond Room. Actually, it's got these amazing, like, 1960s. Anyway, <laughs> so we were very well-fed and well-appointed in his garage. But um, we wanted to to have less voices in our head, fewer voices in our head, while we were writing the pilot. The development process with executives – I've worked with really brilliant executives, by the way, who have great ideas. And I'm certainly not shooting on the process whole cloth. But I think for this – we wanted to see what a magician's pilot script would look like if there, if it was just kind of the creative heads in the room and no one else. And I think that really appealed to Lev as well. And I think that is probably part of the reason he consented to let us take a stab at it. And it felt great having been on a staff and having been developing stuff kind of nonstop for many years. It was, it was great to just take a couple of months and just work with another writer. Very cool. Now, Let's dive into this season two proper here, because we learned in season one that this whole cycle 
of what we're seeing here has happened 39 times before with the help of some time travel shenanigans from the Watcher Woman. But Mm -hmm. with this being the 40th and final chance, is it fair to say that Julia has introduced just that one variable that they needed to get farther than they've ever gotten before? Or are there... Or are they still on a path that has been tried before? They're on a new path. Uh, every time Jane Chatwin starts the time loop over, she changes something. I mean, w- when we talked about it in the writers' room, we kind of imagined her sometimes having like a really tense conference with Dean Fogg, who is um, this not so willing participant in her time loop, but he knows it's there. He probably wants to have a say. Um, and sometimes she listens to him and sometimes she doesn't. But I I think they had tried a lot of things. I think Jane had tried a lot of things. And yeah, the big wild card was Julia this time. And they're not all lying on the floor dead forever. So it was brutal for Julia, but maybe the smartest move Jane could have made. Now, you know, we were talking a little bit about the writer's room. And, you know, since you're the showrunner, you kind of get to do what you want to a certain extent. But what's one of your favorite things about participating in the production of The Magicians? Is it being on the set? post-production, you know, things that you maybe wouldn't have gotten to do had you just been in the writer's room? Um, basically, what you just said is my favorite thing about it. The, the fact that you get to wear so many hats when you're a television producer, that you wake up in the morning and you write and then you, you know, produce, meaning you're on a million phone calls and you're in meetings and then you go to the set and you chat with the actors and you chat with the director. I mean, it's kind of two dozen jobs in one. And if you have like a little bit of ADD and you're a super geeky, enthusiastic person the way that I am, it's it's the right kind of environment. <laughs> so now the end of season one had our heroes in pretty dire straits with Julia taking both the Moonstone knife and the beast mm-hmm. with her. Mm-hmm. So can we expect to see this Hedgewitch have her own set of plot lines again this season, perhaps hunting down Reynard? Yeah, hunting Reynard is her number one priority. We always have a lot of threads going at once on the magicians. It seems to be the way this particular beast operates. I mean the show, not the beast beast. <laughs> um, but, but she intersects a lot with the other characters. I mean, in season two, more than even in season one, there are, we have a lot of worlds up and running at the same time. We have the Hedwitches of New York, and we have Break Bills University, and we also have Fillory, and we spend a lot of time there. And for Elliot, he's a character who's stuck there. He's made a contract that binds him to Fillory. So it, it's been really fun and interesting to kind of make those stakes as real and difficult for our characters as possible, but also see the fun, creative ways we could have them intersect into each other's storylines. How's it been working on location for the scenes that take place in Fillory as opposed to the soundstage for break bills? Uh, I mean, I imagine they each have their advantages and disadvantage, but more or less immersive for filming. I mean, Vancouver is such an amazing place to shoot this. It's the perfect, I mean, it kind of is Fillory. You leave the city and you drive for a few minutes and you're in the middle of beautiful old growth forest. And we're not a show... I'll put it to you this way. We don't have the same budget as Game of Thrones. Um, (laughs) And that's okay. And I really, really believe in sort of the um, creative wisdom that comes from limitation. But we knew that we were going to have to kind of harness the natural beauty of Vancouver to bring Fillory to life. Because we can't do 10 layers of VFX and builds in every single shot. That's just not feasible on our schedule and with our budget. So we made sure that we were filming 
the right time of year. And I actually had never been on location in Vancouver during the summer before. I mean, I, I was on the rooftop shooting supernatural, like in a whiteout blizzard, you know? (laughs) Um, So I I thought of Vancouver as this very, very rainy kind of gloomy place because that's what I saw. I'd never been there when everything is in bloom. It's just so gorgeous. Um, You do feel like when you walk onto a set that is, you know, a piece of of wilderness that they've tricked out to make it fillery, it took my breath away. I mean, I'm still not used to it. Now, that being said, of course... I assume we're still going to see break bills and Dean Fogg still being part of the students' lives now that they're in Fillory because they still have to graduate, don't they? Yeah. I mean, they don't have to. <laughs> Any graduate student, you could say fuck it. And just, oh, can I say fuck it on your show? Sure. <laughs> and Elliot, Elliot's not going to worry about it. Yeah. Too much, okay. I, guess. <laughs> uh, I mean, they could, you know, they could quit, I suppose, but like, it's not about getting the degree. It's about getting the knowledge, right? I mean, they're magicians, but they don't know everything they need to know. And a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. They're in very high level magical problems. So they realize pretty quickly that break bills is their best source of information. The interesting thing about Fillory is that it's so inherently magical, right? With the wellspring and all of these creatures and there's a sense that Fillory is just suffused with magic, like veins of it run kind of under the ground and up into people's houses. That's not really the causes and conditions of brilliant magicians, because if you just have it, you don't have to learn to do much with it. You sort of take it for granted. So the really great, knowledgeable magicians, a lot of them are on Earth, where magic is more sparse. We're kind of like, Earth is like the rocky outcropping of magic. So you get people like Dean Fogg and Mayakovsky who have made their life's work of turning it into kind of formal composition that can be used. Okay. Now, speaking of formal composition, you know, we've seen the publicity photos of the royalty of Fillory, and Penny doesn't appear to be wearing a crown. So does he still have a journey ahead of him with regard to being a traveler or at least a separate story arc that we can look forward to? Yeah, he does. I mean, he's around the royals of Fillory. I can't think of a character less likely to want to be a king. <laughs> thinks the whole thing is complete bullshit. <laughs> My favorite thing, the, the season premiere, um, there's a, a, a big sequence where they get crowned. There's a coronation and there's, of course, some tests they have to pass before they can get the crowns, right? Um, and Penny is there for that. But like one of my favorite things is just watching Arjun in those scenes roll his eyes <laughs> and everything <laughs> about it. Penny doesn't care. But he has a lot of important work to do in Fillory. I mean, starting with he's got a hand problem that he's trying to solve. Ah, uh, Yes. <laughs> Well, that's great. So we got Julia, we got Penny, we got the Royals and hopefully Mm -hmm. a little bit of break bills thrown in. So lots of different directions it could go. Yeah. And we're looking forward to Magicians Season 2 starting January 25th. Thank you so much for talking to us tonight, Sarah. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Some nice teases there. Hopefully we'll get to see some of the things she mentioned there sooner rather than later (laughs) because I'm very much enticed to dive right into season two. And that starts on January 25th on sci-fi. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's going to be it for this edition of sci-fi fidelity. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as sci-fi fidelity. And in February, we'll be discussing the magician season two on sci-fi and colony season two on the USA network. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it, whether iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. 
Plus, we take suggestions for future Super 6 topics. Just email us at sci-fi-fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Music